0: Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with Rich Curtis, Chief Executive Officer of future brand Australia, welcome Rich.
1: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm very well. Um, and look, thank you for uh, taking the time because you know the industry talks a lot about brand. Yeah, and I'm talking about the advertising, media, and marketing industry. Brand seems to take up huge amounts of column centimetres of of websites and things. There's always someone at a conference that talks about brand. Yeah. What's your perspective on the way that brand gets used in the industry generally?
1: I think it gets used in myriad different ways, um, you know, some more effective than others, but it can often be a bit of a catch-all. And, um, you know, certainly our perspective is to specialise absolutely on brand, and I think it's important to distinguish between developing a brand and then delivering it and executing it. And I think a lot of the conversation is at that more executional end of the spectrum. And I know there's been lots of conversation around uh, kind of short and long-term horizons around this kind of thing. But I think more and more people are looking at the long-term horizon. And I think all too often when we're talking about PR or sponsorship or even advertising at times, you know, as important as a role as they all play, it's a a shorter-term focus because it's driving a campaign outcome. Whereas a lot of what we do is on a longer arc And that's because brand is a long-term asset and so you need to be able to manage it in a way that has that longer-term perspective so i think it's great that there's so much discussion in and around brand Um, and certainly we spend a lot of our time helping people understand what is the role of the brand in their business and how does it generate value and therefore how can you leverage it as a business asset um, rather than just um here's a shiny new logo because logos will only get you so far, just like ad campaigns will only kind of get you to the next quarter.
0: Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, when there's so much about, oh, here's a new uh, corporate identity for a company. And uh, then there's all this discussion about, well, they've just really changed the font slightly or whatever. But look, Rich, I want to go into brand a lot more. But before we do, just to set up, because one of the things I found fascinating is that you didn't sort of leap out of university or wherever and go straight into a brand company. Uh, interestingly, from my perspective, you actually sort of dipped your toe into the media and advertising space with some internships and early jobs before you landed on brand as a, uh, as a career.
1: Yes. So internships are really important for me and my development. I honestly can't tell you at what point I thought um, a career um, you know, in advertising, media, marketing, branding, whatever you want to call it, kind of might have struck me as a good idea. Um, but I I'd avidly pursued internships um, you know, during my summers at uni. Um, and I was you know, more than happy to work for free to get the experience. And if anything... You know, my goal with all of those internships was, um, you know, typically you might get two or four weeks. And my goal was always to be the, the one intern that would get an extra fortnight because he was a good kid to have around. Um, and then, like I know at the minute, you know, there's, lot, or there's been for a while a lot of discussion about working for free and whether you're taking advantage of people and whatnot. But, you know, the, 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 the experience I got, you know, working at places like Court Burkett & Co and Low Howard Spink and Cara, was invaluable, you know, getting a feel for, you know, how those places worked and, and what advertising and, and media actually were. Um, you know, some of those jobs are a little bit tedious. So spot checking TV ads, you know, the day after or the morning after the, the ads had gone out the night before, you know, making sure those spots had actually gone to air. Um, but you know, once you understand those inner workings, the nuts and bolts, you know, you can build up from there. Um, and if you show enough enthusiasm, and, and, you know, willing, you know, you get to do some kind of interesting things. I remember at Low Howard Spink specifically there was a, they had a big pitch on and they must have had about five or six creative teams on it and I remember sat one afternoon quietly in the corner of the room and I felt extremely lucky to even be in the room as um, that uh, ECD went round the teams one by one um, and, you know, critiqued all their ideas and, you know, it was a real eye-opener. In terms of you know what it was that went into you know an ad campaign, so I feel very lucky to have had that experience. Um, and certainly, you know, I'm, I'm keen for us to you know offer uh, any kind of junior burgers that window into the world of branding because um, it can be a little bit difficult to find your way around our world at times. So um so yeah, invaluable experiences. Yeah, I think it can
0: be impenetrable. If you don't have sort of some family connection or, you know, you know, someone or your parents know someone and and you get that sort of introduction, which is one of the issues that adds to the the sort of lack of diversity, because the industry sort of seems easy for people that have a connection, but incredibly difficult sometimes if you don't.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, So... Uh, one of my, I only got one of my internships out of nepotism, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely, you know, that does weigh on me. Um, you know, I'm a white, uh, private school educated, you know, tertiary educated um, male, right? So um, it's, you know, I, I appreciate that I have had a leg up in ways that, my, you know, many other people might not have done. Um, and and it does weigh on me in terms of you know how do we make our industry more open and accessible or even build a very basic level of awareness that this even exists for people who might not come from the kind of background where you can just you know get a walk-up start i honestly don't have any great solutions for that but it's it's definitely something that you know i'd like for us all to be able to explore and if anyone has any winning ideas i'd you know, love to hear them.
0: You're open to it. Um, It's also interesting what you said about uh, internships generally because I think, you know, as you said, two weeks, you know, three weeks over the summer break or, you know, whenever, but... I think it's when people start turning someone into an unpaid employee, you know, and three months and hang in there because, some, you know, they dangle a carrot that never appears and they basically drag it out until the person just gets so frustrated they, they walk out the door is where the abuse happens. But, you know, I agree with you that if it's a very defined period and it's structured in a way that the person gets the exposure or is at least given the opportunity for exposure. But... Um, just to go back to the chronology, because then for you know, a boy from the UK, you went to the Far East and ended up in uh, in Bangkok, didn't you, with uh, Dentsu Y Yes,
1: yeah, so, I mean, ending up in Bangkok makes it sound like I took a wrong turn at the airport, doesn't it? Um, but it? Uh, Isn't that
0: how, yeah, it's like the hangover. You, I woke <laughs> up in Bangkok, <laughs> you know, yeah. a tattoo
1: and a tooth missing.
0: Exactly. No? It, <laughs> was, it was a
1: big pitch. It was a big pitch. Um... So look, so I had the, the privilege um, of uh, going to Oxford University and um, most people, many people, I don't want to overgeneralize or oversimplify, but, but, but essentially I didn't want to live south of the river and get an apprenticeship job at a you know, law firm or accountancy firm. I wanted to take myself out of um, the, the ordinary or the typical and just do something different. Um, and my brother was at Cambridge. My course is four years. His was three. We're only a year apart, so we finished the same time. And so we went out to live in Bangkok together. Um, and he was lucky enough to get a job at a finance company, which is what he wanted to do. And I was lucky to land myself um, a job um, at Dentsu y which was a weird stitch-up, kind of a, a, a kind of a, a weird JV, um, an American big American company like y and then the Japanese Denso. Um, so it made for a slightly um, curious culture, uh, but, um, but cultural clash. A bit and of then a... you
0: add that into Bangkok, and, and that because Th- yeah, the, the Thai culture is uh, totally different again.
1: Yeah, and and look, what was really it was a little. I mean, it was it was a paid role. I was I was doing my job, but I was very much a fish out of water there. So I was the only person that ever hired locally. So there were other foreigners in and around the place, Americans, Japanese and whatnot. Um, but you know, they're at a senior level, whereas I'm on the shop floor as an account exec. You know, I'm on the bottom of the bottom. Um, and so obviously everyone around me talks Thai. And so I'm trying to learn advertising at the same time as trying to learn Thai language, at the same time as trying to understand the culture and how things work around here so um it was it was definitely you you kind of got to be careful what you wish for but it was a massive learning curve but i really enjoyed my time there and and that certainly you know got me kind of both feet under the desk and in terms of a creative agency and and you know got to work on a mix of big global clients like star alliance and nike um, as well as local things like um brewery so sing and oval team um so yeah so it was good fun but it was a a wild experience.
0: Okay, so looking at your uh, career, that seems to also be a pivotal point. Yeah, you know, we're talking early this millennium. You know, you're in Bangkok. You're working in an advertising agency, and uh, and then the next decision is to go very much focused on brand, and developing brand strategies and brand executions beyond advertising. Was there some sort of pivotal moment that you just went, well, look, advertising is very nice and I've tried media and, you know, what was it that, that got you to, to focus like that?
1: So there, there were a few things that happened and, and one of them was indeed pivotal. So a beer one night with my boss in Bangkok and we were talking about Landor's rebrand of BP um, and somewhat tongue-in-cheek Trying to equate the change to the identity with the amount of money that had supposedly been supposedly been charged. Um, and, and that conversation, not necessarily the, the, the equating the value to the task, but that notion of a, an organization's identity and sense of self and how you might create a brand around that, um, that conversation over beers always stuck with me. And it was, it was pretty much there and then. Um, or, or at least it was that conversation that you know inspired or influenced or, or at least informed my decision to um, put myself in a more strategic, quote unquote role. And, and that was always the attraction. Um, that world of branding seemed, at least to me, um, based on my experience to be at the more strategic end of things versus the experience that I'd had or the experiences that I'd had in, in advertising and media. So that definitely triggered my interest in branding and specifically Landor. Um, then I went back to the UK. Um, for reasons we don't need to get into here, I decided that I wanted to be a film director, um, music, shorts and and film clips and um, ads. Um, and so I was a runner for about 18 months around Soho, which is literally running around Soho. Um, but that, that was super fun. Um, and, you know, got me enough money to buy beer and cigarettes, but that was probably about that. And then I met a girl and and decided that it would be a good idea to go follow her back to Australia because it was whoa, way too cold for her in the UK. Um, and so that then landed me in Australia. So a little bit of a circuitous route. Um, and, you know...
0: So in some ways, so close in Bangkok to Australia, but yet so far. Indeed, indeed, yet, indeed. backed up and then came forward again.
1: Um, so then I got to got to Australia and, and essentially made a beeline to Landor, you know, made it my mission to get myself a job there. Um, and six months later, I did, um, and that's very much where I kind of grew up as a brand strategist and and learnt my craft or trade or however you might want to describe it. Um, and so that would have been two thousand um, and two, and. Um, it was, you know, I. It was my absolute focus to to get a a role as a brand strategist, as opposed to get some other role and try and move laterally. I absolutely wanted to do brand strategy.
0: It's interesting um, that conversation you had with your boss in Thailand about the re- the rebranding of BP, because. It resonated so much with me over the years. How many times agency people, including myself, are just agog at the sorts of money companies will put into rebranding because branding occurs in the advertising world as you know, comms and campaigns and things like that. Now, you know, uh, just uh, you went from Landor into brand and now you're running and, in fact, own the Australian operation of Future Brand and we'll get on to that later. But during that time, what do you think and, and your experience, what is it that makes branding, the val- gives branding the value that it does?
1: Because it's driving people to... Make decisions, and um, you know if you run a choice model study or some kind of um, analysis on what are the what are the purchase factors, you know there'll be a number of them. You know price, distribution, service, features, and and brand will be one of them. And so you know brand will account for anywhere from zero to a hundred percent of that decision. It's different for different sectors or industries different categories you know even for different brands and organizations but brand plays a role in helping people to make a decision and so you have to be thinking about how do you manage that um, and, and how do you manage it in the context of those other drivers because you can't necessarily kind of unbundle the relationship between brand and distribution and service and price and so on and so forth. So and you can't just leave it to manage itself. Um, so you have to you know, be an active participant in how you grow and develop and, and perhaps even transform your brand. Because it's it's a it's a large part of the reason whether it's B2C or B2B, you know, whether you're talking about your customers or whether you're talking about your employees or whether you're even talking about investors and in the market at large. It's part of the equation for why people might take an interest in you and, and buy you, work for you, invest in you. So you have to be managing it. Otherwise, you're just leaving a, a, a super valuable asset um, just sat there on the table doing nothing.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that because from my perspective, and this is an outsider looking in, that bra- these big brand exercises are not often commissioned or engaging marketing that it often goes from corporate strategy all the way through the organisation but has a huge buy-in from CEOs. Marketers can be involved, CMOs can be involved and, and often are, but it's actually a decision often that's driven by the business rather than the marketing function. Is that is that a reasonable or am I generalising too much?
1: No, I think that is a reasonable observation. So I would always say, in fact, I said it to a, a client this morning. Um, we get involved at points of change. There's typically something that's changed about an organisation that invites a re-evaluation of the brand. It might be a new CEO, it might be a new strategy, a new products, a new markets, a new something. There's something a change that's in changed. the
0: marketplace that they've
1: or had in, to yeah, adapt to, or yeah. indeed a change in the marketplace. Yeah. There's something that's changed about the business, and in my brutally simplistic logic. If there's a change in business, then there's a change in brand, um, whether you like it or not. And and it's an opportunity for that brand to adapt or indeed to to signal the ways in which you might be adapting. So to come back to your point, it might be a merger or acquisition. Um, You know, it might be a new strategy, but invariably it's something about the business. Um, And so we tend to take a whole of business view um, because, you know, the brand has that kind of influence across everything, all the ways in which it might operate and go to market. Um, I think, you know, the savvy CMOs and marketing directors can can see it coming and understand what the opportunity might be. But, yes, it's, it's 50-50, whether it's a chief exec or a CMO um, who might call us up.
0: Because, you know, from an agency advertising perspective, their focus is connecting businesses through marketing with consumers but in actual fact the branding and brand goes beyond just the consumer perception to the way that the employees think about it that government relates to it you know uh, that sh- investors and shareholders think about it doesn't it That brand actually has a larger audience than just uh, customers and consumers
1: absolutely um, and and brand is the the one tool and I, I mean that word quite purposely it is a tool that you use it's the one tool that you have to connect with all those different audiences or cohorts or stakeholders or you know however you might describe them um, and you know a good example of that is language I'm forever talking to organizations around the opportunity for language to bring their brand to life um, Kind of the joke I always make and it never fails to amuse is that the two most popular words in branding are Laura um, it's just underdone in terms of recognizing the value of language and, and so if you're if you're talking about a sales team you know they're not going to you know slip out into the back room and knock out a quick DL flyer and make sure the logos placed properly or you know that the PMS refs are right on the color but what they are going to do is they're going to use language. And so, you know, language as a, as a tool for building your brand is really important um, and not just language. As you mentioned, employee engagement, there's a great stat from um, IBM um, and their head of HR, or, or at least she was head of HR till the end of last year. Um, when they look at their employee engagement scores and their client uh, customer SAT scores, um, in the, there's a correlation between the two um, and the... Uh, their employee engagement scores um, account kind of account for two-thirds of their customer sat scores. And so you, you need those things working in harmony. and all too often the brand inside of the organization is left as an afterthought and, and employees become a little bit like second class citizens, whereas they're the ones that need to deliver that experience. And you can't expect you're gonna have a great customer experience if you're not gonna have a great employee experience. And then in terms of CX again, you know, back in the BP days, I remember vividly, um, there was a brand universe as it was very um, grandly uh, called, which was pretty much every touch point that they had. Um, and it was perfectly consistent, yellow and green, everything in its right place. Um, and that was fine for them, because we lived in a world of certainty, whereas there's so much ambiguity and uncertainty and just myriad places and spaces in which brands show up that you can't have that perfect consistency anymore and it would cost you squillions of dollars to kind of brand a customer experience in that way. Um, And so you need to be thinking about signatures. You know, hospitality does this really well in terms of um, what might those brand signatures be that deliver the customer experience Without a logo in it's a behavior. It's something that people might do, whether it's the discretionary money that a Ritz-Carlton employee might have to spend on a guest in order to fix an experience, or whether it's macas and two-part greetings. Hello, how are you? Goodbye. Have a nice day. You know, talking to the child at the counter, not the parents to ask their order. There's all those little um, nudges and, and signature cues that, that are essentially kind of free. It's not another thing to do over the top. And, and to come back to a point you made earlier, I think all so often, you know, we see in the media how much X brand or Y rebrand cost. And, and a lot of the time that cost is overhauling all the touch points that they might have. Right. So if you think about a beer company rebranding, that is a lot of umbrellas and awnings on pubs all across the country. They, they can't rebrand almost because it would just cost too much money. So we're talking about that kind of capex, if you like. Um, But there's a lot of stuff that you can do that is free, essentially. You know, you're going to be talking to clients. You're going to be having huddles with your team. It's a variety of things you're going to be doing. And it's how do you integrate the brand into that as opposed to have it to be an intervention, like another thing I need to think about. It's about how does that brand fit within that experience and help people make a decision to choose your brand.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that because there's a story um, from quite a few years ago where an agency was uh, pitching to uh, Qantas and uh, part of it was we're going to put the U back into Qantas was the concept. And the CMO at the time said, do you know how much money it will cost for us to repaint every aircraft in the fleet? Yeah, you know, and, and it's one of those interesting things because, you know, just visual, and I'm just talking visual identity, you know, with the, the bigger the organisation, the more cost, but also the more time and the logistics, you know, could you imagine like the Marriott's of the world trying to roll out a framework of customer, you know, behaviours that are on a brand? Yep, it's, it's, it's a and, huge endeavour. And tone endeavor. of voice, you know, the language and the tone of voice in that language to cover across all of the touch points that we have today. You know, everything from your own media around websites to, you know, the actual um, the point of accommodation, you know, the, the point of uh, where the customer stays.
1: It, it, it is a huge endeavour, whichever way you look at it. Um, the point you make about Qantas is spot on. So we've done a lot of airline work, and, and airlines typically rebrand when there's new fleet, when they have to paint the planes anyhow. So let's think about whether we might paint them differently than we did last time. Um, but you know, while that might sound superficial, you know, there there is a commercial thing that sits behind that, which is we've invested in new fleet. So let's tell the world about it, and that might typically go hand in hand with um, operational investments as well. So Amadeus. Uh, for example. So, you know, you might have an airline that's gone, we've invested in new planes, we've in invested in new technology and systems. Now, unless we do something with our brand to signal that change, people might not notice. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's where there's an under, there might be an underlying commercial reason for for making that change. But the other point is, you know, Apple has done an incredible job of conditioning us all to versioning, And, you know, in my experience, I think, you know, Telstra um, in a previous role, Telstra is probably the last time I was involved in, and maybe it was the last time anyone was involved in uh, a rebrand that happened overnight, um, where it was, let's all change lock, stock and barrel overnight. Um, But that rarely happens these days. We're all conditioned to versioning. And so you don't have to change over everything overnight you know people understand that if they go to that Marriott hotel there might be some signature experiences or some kind of key moments or key aspects of that experience where they've placed their priority so it might be the room and it might be the concierge experience and and maybe check-in and there's kind of a digital check-in and they'll get to the rest over time but nobody can afford to do it overnight and and it becomes a much more of an organic process. I think the other thing is you know when you're looking at large employee populations it can be very overwhelming to think about just how many people you might have to touch and a neat trick I say trick that makes it sound um like it's a bit of sleight of hand but no but but it's not a sleight of hand but a, a neat way of thinking about that is pivotal populations in any organization will be a pivotal population who over-index on their influence. The classic classic example I always give is um, supermarkets and store managers. You might have 100,000 people working in a supermarket, very difficult to reach 100,000 people, especially when half of them are casuals. But once you realize that a pivotal population is the store manager, that might be 750, 800 people. It's much easier to engage that quantum of people knowing that they're a pivotal population and can then influence everyone else um, another kind of good way to think about it is one up from the bottom, bottom. so if you launch a, a rebrand no one's going to call up the chief exec and go hey you know charlotte what's all this about they're just going to ask their contact center team leader and so if you go one up giving them the, the message or at least the confidence or comfort to know what this is all about you stand a much better chance than purely going top down. So, you know, there are there are insightful ways in which you can um, kind of chunk down any kind of a rebrand um, to make sense for your organisation a- and also to think about, well, why the change in the first place and, and to follow that logic through for how you might then roll out your rebrand without it costing you the earth or, especially these days, kind of, Ripping your organisation apart in terms of the resource onus that it might place on your organisation, um, you know, at a time where everyone's already quite stretched operationally as a consequence of COVID.
0: Mm. It's um it's also interesting listening to you because you know we've seen quite a few major rebrands and and I'm talking about uh, primarily visual identity where it's ended up being quite a small change. Significant change, but, you know, still relatively small. But is that because part of this is working out what to keep and working out what to change as enough to flag that there is a change?
1: It's, um, it's interesting. So there's lots of conversations that I'm sure we all have in the marketing world around, oh, no, we couldn't, we couldn't do that. That would be too bold. That would be too different um, and so on and so forth. But there's an equally important opportunity uh, conversation, which is what if we change and no one notices? Because, you know, to that exact point, because the change is so small as to be kind of, you know, you just wouldn't notice it. Yeah. Um, And and I think that we, you know, we all spend a lot of time inside of organizations and and we see, you know, the same brand day in, day out. Um, And, kind of our customers don't necessarily think about it quite so much. Um, they're not as
0: obsessed with uh, whether that's a, uh, a uh, narrow or a um, normal. Um, they're they're font. not
1: they're not <laughs> as obsessed but I, I do worry that there's a lot of um, aesthetic changes that happen that don't necessarily make a meaningful difference to the experience or a financial difference or commercial difference to the business. Um, and I think it you do run the risk of it being changed for changes sake. Um so it's it's definitely it's definitely a watch out. Um, but I think if you're going to do it, you may as well do it properly because it's going to cost you the same amount of money to change over all those various touch points, you know whether you go from blue to dark blue or whether you go from blue to pink.
0: Mm-hmm. and And you mentioned before, you know often rebranding is about changes. You know we've gone through possibly the largest uh, set of changes with this uh, pandemic in 100 years, do you think that the pandemic itself and the changes that are occurring in business and with consumers is going to drive more rebranding in the future? Is this an opportunity for, uh, for future brand?
1: I think it, it was interesting what happened straight off the back of lockdown. So, you know, we had a series of um, strategy blocks well, you know, as everyone did, had a whole lot of projects in the pipeline, and it was interesting to see some of the more strategic, more significant ones become more important for those organisations than than before pre-COVID, and that was something those organisations recognised quite quickly, and um, and were almost quite relieved that they had something in the works um, to re-evaluate and or reassert their purpose and and what it was that they were all about. Um, And so, you know, I think it certainly kind of strengthened their resolve um, to, you know, make sure that they did have a a clear purpose, you know, whether you give that a big P or a small P um, and and a clear narrative around who they were and and, and what they're doing and and how they do it. I think a lot of other organisations got found out for not necessarily living up to the promises that they were making in the market and I think it was equally interesting to you know think about some of those organizations that were more or less resilient um, and you know were able to you know move to remote working you know more quickly and and actually you know almost strengthen the culture um, because they had a keener sense of ways of working you know whereas those that didn't necessarily live that brand within the organization and um, you know it doesn't, take, it doesn't take much, you know, once you've got a, a kind of a superficial sense of your identity as an organisation, it doesn't take much once you've got that and maybe some tech challenges for the wheels to fall off or at least things to get a little bit wobbly. So I definitely think, oh, I'm not sure whether it's a big opportunity necessarily, wouldn't want to be Time will tell. an ambulance chaser, <laughs> but um, but I think, you know, now more than ever, organisations have taken a good hard look at themselves and... Um, you know, how, how, kind of what support they might provide their people and how they might go to work in ways that um, uh, go to market in ways that might be different to how they might have done before.
0: Now, you had your own uh, sort of inspirational change during COVID uh, and you launched uh, 33, which uh, I, I remember you sharing on LinkedIn and uh, got a phenomenal response. Uh, just uh, are you happy to share what that was about? Yes,
1: yes. So... So that surprised me as as much as anyone else. And I need to give credit to Dave Cairns, uh, one of the team, whose idea it was over lunch, um, just as we were kind of headed towards lockdown. And um, the thought was that, seeing as I wasn't gonna commute every day, so I live up on the Central Coast, um, and so my commute's about 90 minutes or so um, every day into Sydney or wherever I might be going that particular day. And, um, and so to repurpose that 90-minute commute um, by giving that time to people who might need brand and marketing help for free. And so I posted that on LinkedIn and it went absolutely gangbusters, which wasn't what I was expecting. And I think I posted it Tuesday or Wednesday lunchtime. And then it got to the weekend and I was deluged with trying to manage diary bookings for kind of 7.30 till 9.00. And so I got some help to build a website and then uh, integrated that with Zoom and Calendly so that people could book my time and it would automatically uh, put a meeting in our diaries and send out a Zoom link. And so I'd just wake up every morning and and click into 7.30, 8 and 8.30 conversations with, you know, whoever happened to have booked my time and, um, and, and help essentially, or at least try to help. And um, as much as it was about helping other people, um, I'd be lying if I didn't say that it was an amazing way to start my own day, not only being able to help others and being grateful to be able to do so, but just the intellectual challenge um, for someone to say, we're launching this product, You know, it's about X, Y, Z, and it's a little bit different from what we currently do. Um, from a brand architecture point of view, can you give me some pointers about how we ought to be thinking about this? Or, you know, we're launching a new product and we've come up with this short list of names. Can you give me any feedback on which of these might be a, a better or worse name? And it, it was, yeah, it was. It it went on for a fair while. There's now still a few that I do. They pop. They pop up now and then. Um, but you know, it was a time at which everyone was trying to do, or you know, play their small part in in being helpful. Um, and my wife is has always been at me for being useless with my hands. You know, if the washing machine breaks or the toilets on the blink or whatever it might be, I'm I'm absolutely useless, and she is forever reminding me of that. So I felt this was my opportunity to, you know, show my show my value.
0: Well, look, I have to say that uh, I'm personally grateful that uh, this giving approach that you've taken and demonstrated has extended to the. Uh Marketing Mentor Program because uh, you're a mentor in the uh, in that program that we're running, so really appreciate it and Le- uh, thank you for doing it.
1: No, absolute pleasure. And um, and look, going back to the internship conversations earlier, um, you know, I got a lot of help and support. You know, as much as I might have rattled the cage a lot as well in order to put myself in that position. So, you know, it needs to be a little bit of um, kind of a two way kind of conversation. But um, but no. Um, kind of more than happy to help people um, if I can in some small way.
0: Mm. Look uh, we've run out of time. I really appreciate you uh, dropping by and uh, and having this conversation. I find it really interesting because I find there's so many words in our industry, marketing in the broader sense that get used without any real, sort of intention to what what it, they really mean. And I think, you know, what you've shared today around branding and brand is is fantastic, you know, because it does go beyond visual to all sorts of things, you know, from customer experience to language to colours to all sorts of things. So, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: It's absolute pleasure to be here. I love talking about this stuff. Um, as you'd expect. And, and, you know, my parting word on that would be, I think we use a lot of different words to say the same thing. And and ultimately, we're just trying to get something, someone to do something as a consequence of brand, marketing, sponsorship, PR, whatever it might be. I think we have lots of different words for all of those things. But fundamentally, we're just trying to achieve the same thing. So I tend to have quite a simple view of the world. You know, a brand is what a brand does. Um, And I think brands just need to do a heck of a lot more.
0: Well, on that, uh, Rich, is there a brand that you just would love to get your teeth into either because they're doing really badly or you think they've got so much opportunity that's just going (coughs) unrealised?